Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on March 14, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This evening, we're talking with Mimi Signor, a retired hospital staff nurse at a large urban hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. As a nurse, Mimi takes great pride in always treating her patients' welfare as her priority. She's been a member of the Missourians for Single Payer since 1991 and served under several roles, including briefly serving as president. She has organized key leaders in the entire state as Missourians for Single Payer works to educate people about the vital need for improved Medicare for all and to work for its implementation. Missourians for Single Payer, or MOSP, started back in 1989 when a group of state representatives and other interested parties, including the Missouri Hospital Association, traveled to Canada to study their single-payer universal health system called Medicare, with a lowercase m, because, eh, quite simply, it belonged to the people. Afterward, State Representative Gail Chatfield introduced a state single-payer bill called the Missouri Universal Health Assurance Act, which included principles of the Canadian system. The original bill had numerous co-sponsors, including one Republican. The bill was debated on the House floor and nearly passed. Since then, the bill has often been denied a hearing, much less a full debate. MOSP is an all-volunteer, nonpartisan, statewide organization committed to education for the, and the passage of a universal single-payer health bill. When Marilyn Clement formed the National Single-Payer Organization, Citizens for a National Health Program, in 2004, later renamed Healthcare Now, MOSP joined as an organizational member and expanded its focus to also work for passage of federal legislation. MOSP works for universal single-payer health care and nothing else. Please note that Mimi emphasizes that the views she expresses are hers based on her experiences and not that of any entity or organization with which she may be affiliated. Mimi, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark and thank you for joining us this evening. Oh, thank you, Dan. I appreciate you asking me to join you. Um, could you just give us a brief introduction of the Missourians for Single Payer, like you know, what it is, what it's all about, and what it's currently trying to accomplish? Sure, thanks. Um, so we are a, a not-for-profit, nonpartisan, all-volunteer organization. Um, we have members in other parts of the state and outstate. But um, most of our membership is here in, in St. Louis, uh, city and county. Um, our thrust is really and always has been a grassroots campaign. We really believe that the only way we, we will ever achieve single payer for everyone to enjoy good health is to, um, is to educate advocate and agitate for this and um, move our elected people to that position. Um, there are many um, progressive politicians, but they um, fear failure without this public thrust, this grassroots um, movement. And we're not quite there yet. Um, we have, um, you know, we have a change theory that we um, believe it's called um, the morphic field theory of change. And um, uh, it's something like um, the way to change society, the way to change behaviors 
is um, when a critical mass of people is reached. And, of course, we don't know what that number is. We can't guess it. But this is what happens with other social revolutions, whether it be women's suffrage, um, the abolition of slavery, so on. Um, you know, many people, religious leaders, politicians, oppose those things. And eventually, when our society reached a critical mass where we believed that in this issue, then it just changed. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then we had it. So I, I'm not sure how close we are to that critical mass, but um, that's what we're working toward. And so, you know, electing one person as a senator or a congressman or a president is not going to change our society. It, it takes a, a grassroots thrust. So, no. you know, that's what our what our organization um, tries to do, um, mm-hmm. and that's um, what we're working toward. And our ultimate goal, of course, is that everybody have the health security of knowing if they need health care, they're entitled to it. Yeah, that's uh, that's what you're describing. There is is the uh, building of the groundswell, or the, per- the proverbial turning of a big ship, where you know it just takes a lot of effort. But once it starts to turn, it it uh, it picks up speed, and it um, it eventually goes in the right direction. And it seems like um, the, the people are talking about Medicare for all or single payer health care quite a bit these days. Whereas uh, you know five ten years ago, it, it was it was just uh, it just wasn't discussed at all. It was kind of, you know, those are kind of bad words to talk about. Yeah, well, we've had a lot of problem with, um, in the past, we've had a lot of problems with media blackouts on this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, progressive um, magazines and publications have pushed for single payer as long as I can really remember. And so, it, you know, it's not a foreign concept, but the mainstream media, and there has been a fair study on this, it, you know, it's just, you know, it's, we're not discussing it. And so now that we have a, a viable political candidate who is, you know, out there and um, has this number one political plank in his platform is mm-hmm. single payer. Um, the media has to talk about it, right? But right. they're not talking about it in a positive way. They're not talking about it in a way like, yeah, wouldn't it be great if our nation had health security? They're saying too radical, too radical, too radical. And it's just like, no, yeah. this is not yeah. a radical idea Every democracy in the world except ours has some type of universal health care. They take care of their people. We don't. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I think a lot of that pushback is uh, just a result of, you know, the, the, the amount of trouble you have to go through to build up that groundswell. It, it just, it's not an easy fight. It is an uphill battle, but it is a battle worth having. So um, keep up the work. Um, I have a question. It's more of a technical question, too. We, sure. we talk about single payer. We talk about Medicare for all. And I am guilty myself of sort of conflating those two terms. Are they the same thing or or, or not? Or, or what are the differences, if any? 
Yeah, um, so I understand the problem uh, with messaging. Mm-hmm. And um, the movement has had debates over this question about messaging because people don't understand. <clears throat> I use single payer um, in my own messaging because single payer means number one. It means one. So single payer means one program, one fund, one payer, one risk pool, one goal. Everybody gets better health. Um, and so I use that because the other terminology can be um, misinterpreted. I don't think the message of single payer can really be misinterpreted. It just means one. Um, whereas the Medicare, <clears throat> the Medicare for all messaging, which is actually polled as the most popular messaging, um, the rationale is that we have this wonderful single-payer program called Medicare. We've had it since 1965, and it's a great program um, mm-hmm. for um, our seniors. And it's, it's a great relief when you reach 65 and you can have health security. Um, it's, it's a wonderful program. The administrative cost is um, just above 2.5%. So it's cheap to run. It doesn't cost very much when you um, think of everyone who's putting into their Medicare tax um, as we work. Um, It's a great program, and it has really helped seniors be healthy, live longer, and suffer less. So, um, you know, the idea is to improve it and to expand it. Um, it is a single-payer program. The problem with it is it's not universal and that um, there are out-of-pocket costs. The improved Medicare for all is that um, you eliminate the um, out-of-pocket costs and cover everyone and cover the costs. So that's the difference. Um, but, you know, we as a nation pay much more in taxes than any other country in the world just for health care. And yet every other country covers everyone. And in our country, we pay much, much more, but we only cover a, a percent of our population, you know, with Medicare, part of Medicaid, and um, our government employees. So we, as taxpayers, pay a lot more money than anyone else to give health security to a fraction of our people. Um, If we just went to one program for everybody with the same funding, we could have a better health program for everyone than any other country in the world because we pay more. Yeah. Well, that that brings me to a question here because it it yeah. um, you talk about um, your your conversation there is really countrywide. It's 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 federal or you know nation, nationwide. Um, uh-huh. But I, I know that the MOSP when you know just reading some of the literature about it um, when it yeah. started out, it was really proposing things at the uh, at the state level. You know, there's HB eighteen thirty three and HRC twenty eight, which are Missouri state 
proposals, but there's also some federal legislation out there. So um, is is MOSP really uh, working toward a statewide uh, implementation, um, or is it federal-wide, or, this or perhaps year a hybrid? We have we have uh, not worked on our bills, um, although the bills are excellent, and you know I think it's important for a state to have a great bill to use as a model for the rest of the country. Um, you know, other states have had great initiatives toward that end, and there are many reasons why you start in the states because the other social movements that I alluded to started in the states. Mm -hmm. So women's suffrage started in the states, and um, the abolition of slavery, of course, started in the states. And then state by state, we moved toward, you know, federal law. Mm, So, um, you know, the idea that we can do it that way is still viable, Um, the forces that are against that are huge, and I can go into that later. Mm-hmm. Um, but currently, we are supporting the two federal bills. So one is the um, Medicare for All Act of 2019. It's H.R. 1384. Um, that was introduced by um, Pramila Jayapal. Mm-hmm. And then um, also the Medicare for All Act of 2019, S-1129, which was introduced by Senator Bernie Sanders. Um, The House bill has, I'm not even sure anymore, I I hate to say, but I think there's 138 co-sponsors. So it's a very popular bill in Congress. Um, but it's not moving, and the reason why it's not moving is we, the people, are not moving it, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so it's one thing you um, um, dog your your congressman to be a sponsor, and if your congressman, your member of Congress, does not co-sponsor, then you run a candidate, a progressive candidate, against that person, right. and... You know, there's a lot of pushback within that party that, um, you know, you've got a secure seat. Why would you, you know, why would you risk it? Why don't you move off of it, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's controversial, but um, I I think the only way forward is to move forward. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that makes sense because there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, traction behind the divide and conquer sort of approach, you know, start with the states and move your way up. I know represent.us has the similar approach when it comes to voting rights and uh, fairvote.org also does the same sort of thing. It's, uh, it all starts at the state. Uh, That's where the political lines are drawn and things like that. So it makes sense to have this sort of hybrid approach where you, where you start with the states, but you also keep an eye on the federal and, um, yeah, that that sounds like it, it sounds like it is gaining traction. And um, to that end, um, let me see. The uh, single payer is you know, well, like I say, it is gaining traction. But obviously, there's a ways to go. But uh, there are those who are pushing back, right? And one of the big pushbacks I hear on this thing is that, hey, I'm happy with my current insurance. Um, why should I want to change, right? And I I think a lot of that messaging is actually being um, sponsored by um big business perhaps but uh it is getting it is getting uh uh, to be a fairly well-known argument out there so 
if somebody says that, if someone says, hey, I'm happy with my current insurance, could you sort of walk us through how that, um, that is addressed, how that concern is addressed? Well, I can tell you how I address it on a, on a one-on-one and then how I address it um, more largely. Um, on one-on-one, people do tell me that they have great insurance and they're afraid of change. Um, people who have great insurance, number one, are affluent because great insurance is expensive, at least if you're, you know, buying it for yourself. Um, so it's very, very expensive, but it gives you a little more security. And if you buy a very expensive plan, your co-pays and deductibles are a little less. So if you end up in an ICU, you're not going to be bankrupt. Probably. But the fact is, um, we're the only country with medical bankruptcies. No one else in the world except our country has medical bankruptcies, which means if you have something calamitous, if you get in a car wreck, just for example, and you end up in an ICU, um, you know, they'll take your house because you won't be able to pay for it out of pocket. Um, So, People who have fought really hard and, um, you know, they have this fabulous insurance plan, so if they have a car wreck, if they are stricken with a heart attack or cancer or something horrible, catastrophic, that they have health security. Um, Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Again, most of our medical bankruptcies in this country are people who thought they had great insurance and um, it didn't cover everything. The Medicare for all bills cover out-of-pocket expenses. There's not a copay. There's not a deductible. If you have to be in the ICU, you know, you don't have to worry about losing your house. So when I'm talking to somebody with great insurance, um, I say, you know, that's wonderful that you can have that. And so don't you want that for your children, your grandchildren? Mm-hmm. I mean, the uninsured in this country are not just adults. They're adults and their children, their babies. They're right. all of us. Um, and so when you think of it, you know, the face of the uninsured, you know, you just like there's this blank like mm-hmm. stick figure, but when you think of it as real people, um, we're not just talking about adults. We're talking about children who need us, mm-hmm. and our country's children really need us. Um, we have the worst um, childhood immunization rate in the world, second only to Haiti. Wow. Um, childhood immunizations should be free for everybody why why aren't our children allowed to be healthy i i don't understand a country like that but mm-hmm. i digress so on a personal level i ask the person with the supposed fabulous insurance don't they want that for their family mm-hmm. don't they want it for their next door neighbor their neighbors their let's say, church or their community and then their country? Don't they, don't they want everybody to have health security? Um, you know, 
people feel like I've got mine, so you you get yours. <laughs> well, that's uh, you know one thing that the, this recent um, issue with the coronavirus is sort of teaching us is that um, there are people who are not covered by insurance and are not getting those immunizations. It doesn't have to, and you know, may or may not have anything to do with the coronavirus, but it's an example of how things can. Uh, still affect you even if you're fully covered if your neighbors are not covered and your kids are playing with the neighbor kids guess what happens you know you, you get exposed anyways sure and then um, to the, to your question about people with great insurance um, I think we have to also talk about um, the insurance that has been negotiated um, by um, labor leaders mm -hmm. at the bargaining table um, that's very important. And there are many labor unions and um, labor organizations and groups who support a single-payer program because they know that if everyone had great health care, when the labor leaders got to the bargaining table, they could negotiate for things that they're really good at negotiating for, which is better pay, mm -hmm. safe working conditions, um, retirement benefits, things like that, which, um, you know, labor unions have been really good at, really great at um, negotiating for. And, um, you know, it's something that um, is very important. What labor unions forget is that Sometimes when you retire, those negotiated benefits for health insurance can go away. Mm -hmm. um, my late husband was um, a journalist, and when he became an editor, he refused to give up his um, union membership. Mm -hmm. And he was told, well, you know, we can't pay you a good salary because if you're in the union, you get a union salary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're not going to get more pay um, as an editor. And he chose to take less pay for the security mm -hmm. of, you know, being a member of the team by being a member of the union and having that safety net. Well, so after he retired... Um, it was negotiated out his uh, health insurance. Hmm. So in the middle of the year, he he was left with no health insurance. Hmm. So he had to find some. Um, just because you have it in your contract doesn't mean you're always going to have it in your contract because in another two years, you're going to negotiate again. Right. And are you going to have the same power? Um, the other thing is if you um, if you're working full time and you have the insurance and then suddenly you're laid off or you're part time, et cetera, you may lose that benefit and you won't have health security through your union, even though you fought for it, bargained for it, and won it it's it's not set in stone. Yeah. you think it is, but it it's not it's not health security. A national health program is health security, and really, it's what we want, it's what we need, and it's what we should fight for, whether we have great insurance or not. And that's coming from 
mm-hmm. a retired nurse who yeah. found great insurance. I was lucky. Um, if you have pre-existing conditions, even though insurance companies are not supposed to ask you, mm-hmm. they have access to that. Right. Um, you know, when you go for, let's say you go to the hospital for a test and you sign this uh, HIPAA form, which is a federal privacy law, mm-hmm. and the law says your health care providers cannot share your personal private health information with anyone except your insurance company. Mm, mm. Yeah, so they have access to, the, to the, all that information then. Of course they do. Yeah. And um, so obviously I'm over 65. So when you, you know, when you uh, are entitled to Medicare, if you can afford it, you can buy a Medigap policy, which covers the 20% that Medicare doesn't pay currently. Mm-hmm. And if you want a great program, that's fine. If you have hypertension, diabetes, or some chronic problem like that, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to buy an excellent plan mm-hmm. um, because um, of cherry picking. So, um, you know, just because you think you're secure, it doesn't mean you are. Yeah. O- only a national program that covers everyone can um, be a true health security for Americans. And, you know, I'm not just talking about you and me and other adults. I'm talking about our children and grandchildren. Yeah. I think that's just too important not to work for. Yeah, I think it, it's you've hit upon a, a really good um um, issue there because you know, and and you're talking. You went from the individual. Now we're talking about the, the big issue here, and that is, you know, people do get laid off. Uh, I personally experienced that myself, um, having great insurance and suddenly being given the the pink slip, the proverbial pink slip. And uh, even though the company was very good about it, uh, you know, they covered me. I think for up to a year afterwards. Uh, still, it's uh, that that security goes away. Um, my son, for example, is part of the uh, gig economy, and so he he does you know, work wherever he can and does okay at it. But uh, you know, there's no health security for him either. So uh, this becomes a big issue, uh, and I think you know there's companies like Uber who are being um, challenged to cover their drivers with health insurance. And so, um, yeah, I think it's a really good argument from a from a nationwide uh, big picture perspective for the uh, single payer system. Um, I just want to move on to to the um, another argument. And this is, uh, I read articles about this. And a few weeks ago, we had uh, Dr. Oscar Lovelace on, on the podcast, and he's uh, a rural doctor in uh, South Carolina. And he, he sort of, uh, between him and these articles, I, I sort of got turned on to this to this other argument about single payer. It says that you know, Medicare pays less to the hospitals. Uh, in fact, some articles say that uh, sometimes the Medicare would pay uh, a third of what uh, private insurance pays. In other words, a hospital will have a bill for, say, you know, $10,000. Uh, Medicare would pay, you know, a third of that, right? So, uh, and insurance, private insurance companies would pay all of it. So that's the argument goes that, you know, that that says because Medicare pays less, uh, many hospitals would close down, including our 
you know, rapidly disappearing rural hospitals. So um, can you walk us through how, how this issue sure, plays Dan. out? Sure, Dan. So I, I don't want to say not true, not true, mm-hmm. but I'll tell you this. Medicare guidelines, which is their fee schedule, is used universally in this country as a guideline for every insurance company. Some insurance companies pay a little less. Some insurance companies pay a little more. But health insurance companies do not pay the full price. So let me just give you an example. Um, So I have Medicare. I get a bill. Well, not a bill, but a statement that says, I'm just going to give you an example. Mm -hmm. Um, Your diagnostic test costs, um, let's say, $3,000. I'm making this up, but Mm -hmm. this is an example. Um, Your diagnostic test costs $3,000, and um, your negotiated Medicare payment is $300, and then the cost to the like doctor reading the test is going to be a hundred dollars, and so on. And so, like the hospital or the um, the uh, facility institution, mm-hmm. yes, the facility um, doesn't get the three thousand dollars. It gets the negotiated rate. Well, let me tell you, insurance companies negotiate the same way, and they are not paying three thousand dollars. They are mm-hmm. not. I, I, they're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's negotiated. Um, I'll tell you who has to pay the three thousand dollars: the uninsured. Yeah. The people yeah. who are paying cash. Yeah. They have to pay the three thousand dollars. It's a. Uh, it's a artificial amount and it's (laughs) so um so uh for a time before i retired i was uh i was doing cardiac stress testing in a lab and people would say to me how much does this test cost (laughs) and the answer is I don't know. What do you got? You know, um, you know, you'll have to call the billing. Well, you'll have to call the billing, you know, department because I only know how much this costs if you're paying cash. Mm-hmm. So if it's like a simple treadmill test, maybe it's like, I don't know, $500. But if Medicare is paying for that simple, you know, walk on the treadmill, it could be $100. Mm-hmm. The answer is, I have no idea how much it costs, and nobody else does either. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, a few years ago, when I was still working and had uh, insurance, employer insurance, um, I I needed sinus surgery, and I knew that I had to stay in network for everything, mm-hmm. and that the physicians reading my like tests had to be in network too. And I simply could not get an answer. Um, And, you know, this is a big network. This is a big system. So I would phone different hospitals to say, 
you know, how much is this CAT scan going to cost? Mm-hmm. They can't tell me. Mm-hmm. I'll say, well, this is my insurance. They still can't tell me. Um, when I went for my CAT scan, I said, I want a doctor in my plan to read the test. They right. couldn't guarantee that. And guess what? Wow. I had to pay for it because the doctor reading the test wasn't affiliated with the facility where I had my CAT scan. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, so you don't know how much things cost because nobody knows how much things cost. But I assure you, um, health insurance companies negotiate what they pay, and they are not the ones that are going to keep rural hospitals afloat. Only Medicare for all can keep hospital um, I'm sorry, rural hospitals, rural hospitals afloat. And the reason why is you give the care, yeah. you get reimbursed for the care. It's guaranteed. Yeah. And it's um, a lot less paperwork, too. I mean, if you have, uh, if, if hospitals, rural or otherwise, are having to deal with all these different insurance companies, they have to uh, um, devote a significant amount of their time, perhaps even hiring an, ex- an expert at dealing with these different insurance companies to um, to just get the bills paid, you know, and that, that goes away with single payer, right? Yes, it does. And in addition, you know, people think that if you have insurance, that's health security. Not every hospital takes every insurance plan. Yeah. Not every physician takes every health insurance plan. And so, um, when, um, when I was working, um, my hospital had various insurance plans over the years and some of them were good, some of them were worse, and some of them were a lot worse and, um, the reimbursement rates were very low. And there was a time when, um, the insurance plan that, um, we had, um, Many doctors who were affiliated with my hospital wouldn't see me in the office because they didn't take that insurance. Yeah. You have to be so careful. And um, you just never know. I mean, you, you will know. I mean, if you say, I have this insurance, does your hospital take it? They might say yes. Yeah. But it doesn't answer the question, is every doctor I see going to take my insurance plan. You don't know. Yeah, that actually happened to me. I was, uh, I took a fall a few years back and and broke my shoulder. Um, oh. Broke it really good. It was had to have reconstructive surgery done on it. And so you know, I'm just kind of going along with the whole thing. But before I go into the hospital, I you know I, I it was not an emergency thing. So I had you know some time. My wife and I had some time to research this. And so we, you know, we called the, the, the surgeon's office, said, okay, who's the surgeon? Is he covered? Yes. Who's the anesthesiologist? Is he covered? Yes. Uh, and all materials are covered. So I get wheeled into the operating room, and I'm, I'm somewhat anesthetized by that time. And um, they said, could you lift your legs, please, because we need to put on this, this uh, uh, for lack of a better term, some sort of stockings of some sort, I guess. And they put them on my legs. I said, well, what are you doing that for? They said, well... You know, you're going to be out for you know, two or three hours while we reconstruct your, your your shoulder, but we want to make sure blood doesn't pool in your legs. Eh, okay, sounds reasonable. I was already anesthetized at that point, so it was very cooperative. And uh, 
a month later, we get this bill for $2,000 for these particular things that they slipped on my legs were not uh, covered by my insurance. Um, we fought it and we won, but it was one of those things where, uh, boy, boy, you look for all the possible things that, that cannot be covered and still we missed one. <laughs> so that's... Uh, sure. And um, insurance companies are exist for only one reason, and that's not to give you health care. That's to make a load of money, which they do. Um, so we, uh, at Missourians for Single Payer, we had um, a board member who was um, a physician, and she um, sadly got cancer. She had great insurance, and yet, as sick as she was from her, you know, treatments, et cetera, she had to fight with the insurance company because they were denying payments that she was qualified to get. Oh, my gosh. When you're sick, you don't need that extra stress yeah. of, you know, either paying out of pocket for something you don't need to pay for or fighting, fighting, fighting um, to get your payments. Um, it, it's cruel. It's, it's very cruel. And we're still going through that. Um, so I can't emphasize enough that just because you have great insurance, it doesn't give you health security. And when you're sick, you, you just can't fight them, even though you can win the battle. Um, you don't need that stress. Right. You, you, you know, you need everything you can just to feel better, get better. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was very fortunate. My wife took over a lot of that, uh, <laughs> a lot of that stress there, but, uh, but yeah, I can imagine that if you're alone or, you know, you, you, you just don't have that support network to help you out. Um, it also turns out my wife is, uh, she works at a hospital and deals with insurance companies a lot. So she kind of knew, you know, what, what to do and what not to do, which is, but I'm very fortunate in that regard. And you know, there's a lot of people out there that, that don't have that, uh, that good fortune. Um, I wanted to sort of, uh, try to wrap this up pretty soon here, but I, I had something I wanted to ask about. It was, um, during one of the democratic debates, um, uh, Bernie Sanders was, was, cornered really, uh, for lack of a better term, he was cornered on the concept of raising taxes in order to implement Medicare for all. And I was a little bit disappointed in him because I, I, I thought he really failed to make a good argument. Um, because to me, it's kind of obvious the tax structure is going to change. And so, um, yes, on one hand, your tax was going to have to cover single payer or Medicare for all, whatever, you know, the, the program is. But, um, but on the other hand, you you get this, uh, you get a reduction, obviously, in in the in the premiums that you're paying, uh, or the premiums that your company's paying. And uh, so, what would the implications be for the average household when it comes to yeah, financing I, this? I I agree with you. I think Senator Sanders did a very poor job of that, and he knows better. I mean, he he has been working on this issue for such a long time. Um, I can tell you that every study done in the states and in the in the um, federal government, every single study on how best we can achieve universal health care 
always comes out single payer. It's just the cheapest way we can do it. Um, we already pay too many taxes, and you know, I think I mentioned this the other evening when I talked with you that um, the, our middle class is just battered with um, paying too much, mm-hmm. while um, the very, very affluent people pay too little. Mm-hmm. And that is a trend that's been happening for decades. Um, so uh, our taxation is regressive and it's unfair. And I think, you know, that that needs to be addressed. But we already pay more than any other country in the world for health, health uh, security for a fraction of our people. Mm-hmm. And if you remove the administrative costs of health insurance and only pay the two and a half percent or so administrative costs of traditional Medicare, really it should be much less in taxes. But even if we paid what we pay now, which is way, way, way more than any other country, I think we could fund it. Um, what uh, Senator Sanders was suggesting was an increase in the Medicare tax from three and a half percent to four percent, mm. which really, if you look at your paycheck and compare that four percent Medicare tax with what you pay in premiums, copays, deductibles, prescription drugs, eyeglasses, etc., you'll find that. Um, it's way less money in taxes than what we pay now. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the problem is we don't understand how much we're already paying for so much less than anybody else, any other, let's just say democracy, let's not even say every other country, because, you know, um, I'm not talking about communist countries, I'm talking about democracies. Mm -hmm. We pay too much and we get too little. And I think that's part of our problem is that we don't see our tax dollars going to something worthwhile and something that helps everybody. And with, um, you know, with a national health program, our taxes would help everybody. Um, and I, I think Senator Sanders was perhaps disingenuous. We have many economists and many um, economical studies, especially currently, that prove that it will be a boon to our economy and it will not cost that much money. Um, and until we, until we explain it better, I think that we're not going to turn heads with um, this, this plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think maybe he needs to like maybe turn that question over to an economist or I'm sorry, an economist who mm-hmm. who can explain it better if he can, if he cannot. Yeah, well, one one way I've found to explain it, which is, um, and again, a few weeks ago when we talked with Doctor Lovelace, um, he threw this number out, which is a very solid number. He said uh, we as a nation spend three point two five trillion dollars for healthcare every year. So that's, you know, a trillion is actually one with you know, 12 zeros behind it. That's a lot of zeros. So 
Uh, you divide that out by uh, roughly 330 million people, and I'm talking man, woman, child, everybody, uh, it ends up being about $10,000 for every single person out there. So that's how much we spend on healthcare. And you know, I, I, that's, that's one number I thought that would kind of shock a lot of people because if you have a family of four that's already $40,000, you might not even make more, much more than that as a, you know, if you're working. So it, it, it boggles my mind how, how much money goes into this and that might be one place to start, you know, talking about, gee, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. So, and, and what, what would be, I guess the target, what would be the target for a single payer? I mean, obviously it's going to be less than $10,000 per, per person, right? Well, um, I can tell you that if you, um, if you compare it to Canadian Medicare, so um, Canada has um, a universal single-payer program, and it's also called Medicare. It's just spelled with a lowercase m. Mm -hmm. um, but um, so just for example, if you uh, cut yourself, go to the emergency room, you um, get a clean, get stitches, get an antibiotic and, um, you know, a dressing, et cetera, and you leave the hospital, um, your bill is zero. Mm -hmm. So, so the, you know, so the emergency department bills the single payer and the single payer pays the bill. And um, I'm not saying it's instantly, but it's pretty quickly that they get their reimbursement. So if you compare that to what happens um, here, you um, so you cut yourself, you go to um, an emergency department, and um, they give you antibiotic stitches, a dressing, um, and then you get you get a bill. Um, even if you have insurance. You still pay a copay. Might mm -hmm. be fifty, might be hundred. If you go to an out of network with your insurance, if you go to an out of network, you have to pay full price. Mm -hmm. um, if you have n no money and no insurance, it used to be that um, your hospital uh, has a fund for unreimbursed care that was supported by um, federal dollars. Mm -hmm. um, with the uh, new rules and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, um, they, hospitals are um, not getting the same uh, federal dollars as they used to get for mm -hmm. unreimbursed care. And the idea is that, um, you know, under the ACA, everyone would be required mm -hmm. to have some kind of insurance and then you know the the federal government then wouldn't have any obligation to help people who couldn't pay for it mm -hmm. um well we you know we saw where that <laughs> yeah. how that happened about mandatory for-profit insurance how well that went over right and um but still the federal dollars are not forthcoming so emergency rooms are having a really difficult time with um, unreimbursed care and um, yet they're they're suffering because of it um, so 
again, you know, if you so if you have Medicare in Canada, you can you, no matter how old you are, you have it and you go to the emergency room and you get your emergency care and you don't see a bill. Yeah. Um, whereas here, you're going to see a bill whether you have insurance or not. Yeah. And yeah. and it's going to be a big surprise. You know, you won't know, but if it's an emergency, you just go. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh well, I I, I personally have a $6,000 deductible for family coverage for me, so um I will pay uh whatever the negotiated rate is, uh unless I've gone over that $6,000, but it basically comes out of my pocket. So, um that can be expensive, you know. It I mean, Yeah, it, and that, you know, I don't call that health security. Right. It right. it isn't. And I think I think if we just focus on you know, how great it would feel to have health security and how great it would feel for our country that everybody has health security. Mm-hmm. Why can't we have it? You know, why right. we can't have it? Because we're not demanding it. Yeah. You simply have to demand it. And we're not we're not quite there, but we're, um, we're, we're gaining it. on it. Yeah. Well, let's uh, wrap up soon. We, we've been talking with sure. Mimi Signor, uh, a nurse and activist with Missourians for Single Payer Healthcare, and um, just to sort of wrap things up, uh, two more questions for uh, fairly brief questions. What can people do today to get involved in advocating and uh, to promote single payer? Um, I I think that we have to do it by discussing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so our, you know, our main thrust is educate and advocate. Um, we also have to, um, we have to build relationships with our elected persons. It's so important, um, to have a relationship with, um, the people who are supposed to represent your best interests. Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's somebody you actually voted for or not, um, your elected person needs to know um, your issues, your problems, and um, how you want them to serve you because they're supposed to be public servants, um, not prostitutes for the industries. Um, And so these public servants in order to serve you, you have to have a relationship. So just for example, I've had Congress members of Congress, let's just say, who um, know me and are glad to see me, and we can have a discussion, and it can be reasonable. Um, I've also had a member of Congress run Mm -hmm. (laughs) because we also had discussions, and, you know, we – you know, we could both express how we feel about the issues, and and you know, it's reasonable to disagree. Um, but I'm not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and uh, you know, I think it's important that your elected persons be responsive to your needs and the needs of the community. Because if they're not, then who are they working for? They're right. supposed to be working for you. And if they're not, then um, you need to run for office. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so that's another problem. You have political parties who, you know, once 
once they have their person in, they don't want to rock the boat. But right. sometimes you must rock the boat. So either change or then, or, you know, be removed and have somebody better, somebody who will acknowledge um, what we really need in this country, and that is health security. And that, that uh, relates also to your single, I mean, to your uh, state representative and senator as well as your oh, uh, U.S. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I do write my congressperson. Uh, her name is Ann Wagner, and um, although I don't agree with her on most things, uh, she actually does uh, respond, so that's, uh, that's good. Um, I'm not sure if the responses are what I want, but uh, at least I make my views known. Uh, yeah, and that's very important. Um, I, there's nothing I hate worse than getting a form letter after I, after write a personal impassioned yeah. letter. You know, I don't want. You know, you know. Well, I can't quote it. Mm-hmm. It's not in front of me. But you know what I'm talking about. Where you know that member of Congress never saw your letter. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's the case. Yeah, most of the time it's it, just a rubber stamp. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's important, and I say, uh, and so even though that happens, don't stop writing, don't stop phoning. Mm-hmm. Letters to the editor can help as well. Oh my goodness! So I can't tell you how important it is that you that everyone participate in um, using one's voice. Mm-hmm. So there are plenty of opportunities. Um, if you write pretty succinctly and well, and um, and you can, you should write an op-ed. Mm-hmm. Um, I know many people who are very good at it, and they have great op-eds that appear in the newspaper and you know in the pendant pages, and you know people. People read it, and yeah. it's a point of view that perhaps your local newspaper's editorial board maybe doesn't embrace the same ideas, but at least you have a voice. Letters to the editor are great. They they have rules, so you can only write like every 60, 90 days, and you have to keep it under a certain number of words. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, if you can can write smart, write succinctly, and verbalize your opinion, that's great. Um, there are also radio talk shows and television mm-hmm. um, talk shows. Um, There's also town halls you can go to as well when the uh, politicians do show up for those. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, that's going to be difficult because um, here in St. Louis, our county executive just made it illegal to have... <laughs> More than 250 people at a gathering. Yeah, that's a temporary <laughs> thing because of the virus. So it's a yeah. political um, yeah. uh, debate that's going to be a little difficult. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. Town halls are wonderful venues because the people who go to them, you know, they, you know, you have a voice. Also, even your city council meeting. County council meetings, uh, places like that are very good. Um, but um, talk radio, that has a large audience. And also um, uh, your public TV stations have talk shows. And you can call in and you can verbalize. Um, 
and uh, it gives you an opportunity to speak. So I would say I would encourage everyone to to do that um, because you have a larger audience and, um, you know, it sort of negates part of the media blackout on this topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you kind of slip in under the wire in some cases like that. (laughs) Well, we try and we, we need to just keep doing that. Okay. And as far as the uh, Missourians for Single-Payer Healthcare, they do have a website that's www.mosp.us, Missourians for Single-Payer. That's right. We also have a Facebook page if people out there do Facebook page. Okay. I don't know how to quote Facebook page uh, addresses, but I assume that the uh, website there is probably a link to the Facebook page. I think so. Okay. Good. And that's where people can get more information. Well, uh, Mimi, I think we're going to have to wrap this up. We're coming up on an hour here. So I would like to uh, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for asking. And I appreciate having an opportunity to have this discussion. And I hope uh, people listening will have the same discussions with um, with their groups and um, okay. maybe join us. Wonderful. And again, we've been talking with Mimi Signor, a nurse and activist for Missourians for Single-Payer Healthcare. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. All content on this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe and be aware.